and I thought I might begin by, by asking myself or to answer a question that was recently put to me. Why does Orwell almost never mention Winston Churchill? And in his diaries and his letters and his contemporary stuff, as a, Churchill is the, is the commanding figure for many of these years. And uh, my answer to it, because I can, I can find only two references, really. One is in a debate Orwell has with Alex Comfort, later a famous sexologist, and then at that time a famous anarchist, pacifist, anti-war figure in, in uh, wartime Britain, who accuses Orwell of basically signing up with the Tories and becoming a patriot and a pro-war figure. And Orwell replies in, in a poetic form um, under the pen name Obadiah Hornbrook, saying, well, I wouldn't mind joining with you in shooting Churchill when the war is over, but until it is, I'm willing to account him as my friend. And then, of course, at the end of the war, Orwell was very involved in the uh, election of the post-war 1945 Labour government, which swept away the long period of uh, conservative rule that had preceded it and the war. And um, in, in this respect also, I think, um, you know, demonstrated himself as very anti-Churchillian, but it's still a mystery why there's so little said. M my opinion is this, Orwell had hoped that the struggle against fascism, the struggle particularly against Nazi imperialism, would be led by the left and organized by the working class, but it wasn't. The left had failed this test for various reasons, uh, many of them its own fault. And the labor movement wasn't strong enough or decisive enough to mount the crucial resistance. So it had to fall on what he thought of as the old gang, the old Tories. But I've never known this to fail, have you, at any meeting? Anymore? <laughs> How long is it going to go on? Whose job was it to test this before it started? Yours. <laughs> what, what's yours like? Do what? One of the better microphones. <laughs> Could I have a better microphone? <laughs> Will they all be like this? I'll try that. <laughs> that is ominous. Hello? Is that, is that superior? No. It's no joy for me to hear myself played back either, I promise you. Um, well, okay, where was I? So, he wasn't, in other words, his, his opposition to totalitarianism and, and to the temptation that it, that it presented, the seduction that it had carried out on so many intellectuals, was strong enough to mean that he didn't mind if he had to, making common cause with what he would have thought of as the traditional imperialist, class enemy, bombastic conservative, Winston Churchill, I, I, I'm going to offer this at any rate as a point of honor, as a point in his favor, uh, not, as a, not as something that was unscrupulous in the choice of allies, but rather as one that was um, rather choosy in point of fact, but once made uh, very intransigent, um, not in other words open to the charge of uh, casuistry. There were many intellectuals of the time, both in England and in the United States and in continental Europe, who would say, and did say, we can look up what they said. Well. German imperialism in Poland may not be very nice, but neither is British imperialism in India. Uh, why should we have to take one side against the other? There was a good deal of casuistry of that kind. Orwell's reticence, shall we say, on the Churchill question, in a funny way, confirms that he was immune from that kind of uh, feeble-mindedness or mental or moral corruption, but that he didn't particularly want to celebrate the fact. Um, I suppose if I don't say something about this morning's New York Times, I'll be accused of evading the question. So I will say something about what was in this New York Times before I go on. 
I don't know who this guy John Reed is, and I don't know who his parents were or why they christened him with that name. <laughs> um, and he may be a bastard, um, for all I know. Uh, but I can tell you this, and it's in, it's in my book. Uh, he may not know it, because he obviously hasn't read Animal Farm all the way through, but at the end of the book, Mr. Jones does come back and take over the farm. Capitalism is restored. Mr. Jones is invited back. The farm is changed back by name from Animal Farm to Manor Farm. All that's been thought of before, Mr. Reed. Um, and that's the point at which the wretched, uh, luckless other animals can't tell one pig from another. Um, and indeed, as I point out, point out in my book, that's what Trotsky and the left opposition always said would happen, that the Stalinist bureaucracy would sell off what they had nationalized and make a profit out of it, um, as indeed uh, they have, um, though not at the instigation of Snowball, um, it must be said, if anyone is still interested in the allegory or following it. And I also point out what I believe can be made um, original to me, but Peter Stansky would know if I was wrong. I haven't seen it pointed out before at any rate that in this celebrated allegory there is no Lenin. There's no Lenin pig. There's an obvious Stalin pig. Bonapartism was the common name for Stalinism on the left. Napoleon is clearly Stalin. A snowball is clearly Trotsky. But there's no Lenin. Nor is there a Lenin in 1984. There's only Big Brother, Stalin, and Goldstein, Trotsky. What this suggests about Orwell's unwillingness to make up his mind about the continuity between Bolshevism and Stalinism, I think is very suggestive. But it's obviously beyond the wit of Mr. Reed or um, his, the man who's written the introduction to his effort, Alexander Coburn, correctly cited in the New York Times as someone in direct descent um, from a Stalinist uh, dynasty. His father was particularly involved, in fact, in the purging and mopping up and execution of the left opposition in Barcelona and elsewhere in Spain. Um, and they have another thing in common. It seems Mr. Reed had Mr. Reed's main agenda was to celebrate, or at least make it into a cause of self-criticism and introspection, the attack by Islamic fascism on civil society in this great city and elsewhere a short while ago, and to wonder what we had done to deserve, how we might be blamed for this atrocity. And Alex Coburn in his web magazine has recently published the uh, filthy diatribe of Amiri Baraka. I refuse to dignify this diatribe with the name of a poem which blames the fall of the Twin Towers on a Jewish conspiracy and points out that somehow all the Jews in New York managed to be elsewhere that day. This is, in other words, what we're up against in point of intellectual standards. And they very much remind one, and moral standards too, and they very much remind me of the sort of people uh, against whom Orwell had to contend, with heavier odds, actually, in his own life. That digression, then, out of the way, uh, open to challenge, of course, uh, expecting hoping for one. Um, I'll just say quickly that I think the relevance of Orwell is, is this. There's a formal sense in which he's relevant as long as we con continue to study um, the lessons of fascism, national socialism, uh, the lessons of Stalinism, and the lessons of imperialism, which were the three great subjects of the last century. Orwell was the only public intellectual who got them, as it were, right. I mean, he was prescient about all three and inventive in his opposition, and early in his opposition to all three of these. And we can hardly say we've reached a point where we are beyond uh, the study of these questions, it seems to me. So the relevance in that sense is easy to state. <coughs> Indeed, given the continuing triumph <coughs> of the totalitarian principle, um, 
both internally and externally, internally as a terror and externally as a threat in both Iraq and North Korea. I think it could be said, I, hope I wouldn't be thought opportunist if I said, that there was a very direct and immediate relevance to the study of Orwell and also to the study of those who uh, find something vicariously at least not unattractive in such regimes. I'll say no more about that unless challenged, neither. Um, but that would simply be to say that he had, he had okay opinions or he, he, he did and said the right thing. Um, I think more should be said on his side of the ledger than that. I think the crucial point was the language in which he chose to do it. He had a deep intuitive belief in the relationship between the uh, language, the linguistic ability of human beings, and their instinct for liberty, their instinct to be free. Um, one way I've tried to put this, I'll try it on you too, is um, that though he was an atheist, uh, beyond doubt, he was a Protestant atheist. <laughs> His favorite, um, you perhaps don't know the joke about the roadblock in Belfast, the person who stopped, are you a Catholic or a Protestant? I'm an atheist. Are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic atheist? <laughs> Happened to a Jewish friend of mine, in fact, in, in Londonderry. Um, Orwell's favorite line was a line from Milton, from John Milton, which was, by the known rules of ancient liberty. He believed that there was a tradition, uh, in the English language in particular, which was the one he knew best, though he, could be, he spoke French well enough to write in it and published many of his earliest works in the French language, um, that this was uh, partly a romantic memory of a past of, of freedom and equality, and partly the ambition to attain it and to assert it against arbitrary rights claimed by kings, or bishops, nobles, and, and others. Um, he quite clearly identified with the struggle to translate the Bible out of Latin and into English. In other words, the idea of a secret book written in a private language and possessed by an elite party, uh, the church. Uh, the struggle of, of dissidents uh, like um, well, it goes back to Wycliffe. It's a long struggle um, to, uh, to have the Bible rendered into, into the vulgar language, the Vulgate, have it understand it of the people, as the 39 Articles of the Church of England put it, was, has an obvious analogy to the secret book and the party uh, language in 1984, but also to the, to the long battle for, for human liberation and to, the, and to the relationship between that and the terminology in which it's expressed. And I think it's probably that that gives his prose its muscularity and its sinew. And it's noticeable throughout that he has a great feeling, atheist though he is, for the King James Bible and for the Cranmer Prayer Book, not just as works of achievement in, in translation, in, in making uh, the essential literature available to the people, but also as, as works of literature in their own, in their own right. Um, I think myself, the test of any public intellectual or, or any, any person aspiring to that definition, any critic, is really their ability to handle contradiction and to recognize it in themselves as well as in other people. Uh, the other thing I think that gives Orwell's work its, its enduring um, tone is that he knew that he was a man at war with himself. He was brought up, we saw some of the pictures of his upbringing and formation already, um, to distrust the poor and to dislike and fear them, to resent and to fear and think of as objects of domination the peoples of the empire, the colored masses as they used to be called, um, to be suspicious of, of Jews, um, to be very wary of uh, sexual deviance 
of any kind and to think of women as um, either uh, sexless or too sexual, a forbidding combination, the latter, as were the, as are the preceding ones. His whole work is really a, a, an argument with himself in the course of which he persuades himself out of these inherited disabilities without ever failing to acknowledge the influence that they still retain on him. That seems to me to be a very elegant and courageous use of, of contradiction, a very honest uh, employment of it. And so though we may not be able to say, as one is often asked to say, well, what would Orwell have thought about this or that development? He, after all, he only made it into the first few weeks of, the, uh, of 1950, of the second half of the 20th century. He's closer to Dickens than we are to him in some way. Uh, it isn't possible very often to say with accuracy what he would think. I think I can fairly surely say that he would have been against theocratic totalitarianism and its, uh, and its aggression against civil society. I think that would be a fairly uh, uh, emollient, easy uh, conclusion to reach. What I would rather say, though, what I prefer to say, and this, by the way, is in closing, is that whatever it was he would have concluded, because he could still be 99, and on um, so many occasions when one wishes that he had made it that far, whatever, it, whatever position it was that he did take, it would still have been a pleasure to disagree with him. Thank you. <laughs>